0: Thank you for tuning into Emmanuel Faith Community Church. We hope you enjoy today's sermon. Well, once again, welcome. My name's Ryan, I'm one of the pastors here. If you're joining us online or over in the chapel, we are really grateful that you are here as well. Um, Happy Super Bowl Sunday to you. Uh, How many of you are excited about the game? How many of you are excited about the commercials? How many of you are excited to get together with friends or family? How many of you are excited to see how many people actually show up at our five o'clock service today? (laughs) Me too. Hey, I actually want to do a quick update on Love Esco. You know that if you're a part of our church community, you know that this month of February, we are focusing as best we can on loving our community in really practical ways. And I just want to give you a a few cool stories. Yesterday, we had about 90 people gather to do cleanup projects um, in Grape Day and the surrounding areas. And they were able to pick up 73 50-gallon bags of trash And so this was our first time partnering with organizations like Street Stewards and Rotary Club and Escondido Shines. And those three organizations were just amazed at the... um Way that Emmanuel Faith that you showed up to love and care for a community. Um, Even the the mayor showed up, uh, which was really cool. There were um, our high schoolers went over to two different senior uh, citizen homes, um, assisted living homes, where they were able to play board games and bowl with some of the residents there. And then we also hosted a respite night last night for local foster and adoptive families. All in all, yesterday we had about 150 of our people out serving our community, living on mission and loving Escondido with no strings attached. Praise God. Praise God. There are projects going on all throughout this month. And I would just encourage you after the service to go to our Love Esco booth to figure out how you could be involved also. Let's pray for that as we jump into the scriptures today. Lord, we do want to be the kind of church that would represent you in our city really well with the way that we love people and extend compassion to people and the way that we, um, as you called your people to do when they were in exile in Babylon, that we would work for the prosperity of our city because we know that when our city prospers, so do we. And so Lord, um, these love ESCO endeavors that we're undertaking this month, would you just bless them please in Jesus name? Amen. Amen. In 2015, a company called Lucera Labs launched a Kickstarter campaign for a product entitled Wakey. Wakey was a modernized alarm clock that instead of an annoying noise waking you up, it was a focused beam of light said to simulate the sunrise because. You all know how when you're lying on your front lawn and the sun rises on you, that's a great awakening. Okay, so the sunrise, and then there's a focused wave of sound that comes to wake you up so that um, your spouse isn't woken up alongside of you. Now, uh, there were 712 Kickstarter backers and they raised roughly $164,000. Evidently, there's a market to be awoken in a more humane manner. Now, that was 2015. I did some research. I couldn't find the product for sale anywhere. Uh, So evidently, it either didn't work all that well, or it didn't quite get off the ground. And so maybe we need a product more like clocky instead of wakey. And here's what happens with clocky the alarm goes off and then clocky takes off all around your room. It's on wheels. And so then you have to chase it in order to get it to turn off. (laughs) How many of you just found the Valentine's Day gift that you've been looking for? (laughs) I have no comment. (laughs) Here's what I've discovered though. Here's what I've discovered. The effectiveness of any alarm clock is in direct correlation to how much you don't want to hear it. Its effectiveness is really baked into the fact that it's, it's annoying. Alarms work because we hate them. We would much rather keep sleeping. Can I get an amen? Amen. Right? So to be awakened, we have to be brought to attention, agitated, aroused, be made uncomfortable or even maybe jarred a little bit. Maybe it's why the scriptures use this term awakening to talk about a a revelation Or to talk about something that God would want to do in the lives of his people. Psalm 57, verse 8, awake, my soul. Or awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. Shake yourself from the dust. Arise. Awake, O oh sleeper, Paul would write in the book of Ephesians, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. You almost get the picture that God is saying to his people, wakey, <laughs> or, or, or wake up. So here's my question. Why would this imagery be so prevalent all throughout the scriptures? And it may be obvious, but I'll state the obvious. It's because we have a tendency to get lulled to sleep. It's because we have a tendency to allow the the numbing effects of sin to just sink into our soul. We have a tendency to just acquiesce to the powerful draw of sin and to think that it's just normal. The monotonous hum of the world's melody functions so much like the song of the sirens becking us towards the cliffs and so many lives have just been crashed upon them without even knowing it, lulled to sleep. And so sometimes it takes what we might call an aha moment, doesn't it? An aha moment. That, that word aha is actually in the dictionary. It made the cut, yes. It's roughly defined as when something is seen suddenly. It's found or understood. Everybody say, aha, with me. Uh Uh Aha, yeah. Uh, My guess is you've had an uh aha moment. It might have been falling in love with somebody that had been right in front of you for years and years. Uh (laughs) Aha. It might have been the realization that you don't have to please everyone. Amen. (laughs) It may have been the realization, that aha of, ooh, I don't think I've let go of that and I need to forgive. It it might've been that, oh, God, you really are in control. It might've been that aha moment, oh, the Padres really are gonna be better than the Dodgers this year. (laughs) It's an awakening. That aha moment happens actually in this story that Jesus is telling. And it's where we pick up Our story in the scriptures today. If you have your Bible, would you turn with me? Luke chapter 15 is where we've been camping out. And as you're turning there, let me remind you of where we've been over the last few weeks. We're in a series that we're calling This Is Our Story, where we're studying a story that Jesus told. It's typically referred to as the story of the prodigal son. Uh, The story that Jesus told, remember though, isn't just intended to Teach us some objective truth so that we go away knowing more. The stories Jesus told were uh, an invitation to, to step inside of the story, to, to hear the story, and then to reflect on it and ask questions about our own lives, about our own hearts, and maybe today about our own awakening, The first part of the story, this younger son says to his dad, "Um, I want your property. I want my share of the property. It was akin to saying, drop dead. And he leaves and he goes into this far country where the scriptures say that he squandered all of his wealth, that he ended up in a position of scarcity, running out of resources. And then he had to hire himself out to somebody who was in that country and he was effectively enslaved by his decisions. Today, we get, to re- we get to read about this, this aha moment. Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 17. Are you there? Wonderful. This is the way Jesus told the story. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and he came to his father. But while his father was still a long way, or while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. He came to himself. Or as the NIV and other translations would say, he came to his senses. I like that. He came to his senses. It was an aha moment. Or as I I might paraphrase it, he finally woke up. He finally woke up. You, you, you get the picture that at this point in the story, the, the younger son wakes up from maybe a literal slumber, looks around at the slop that he's lying in and goes, how did my life end up here? How, how did I get to that point? He, he awakes to the ruin that he caused and that he's been complicit in. And maybe it's a phrase like, I never thought my life would end up here or I never imagined that this would turn into a dick, an addiction or I never thought that when we say I do, we would eventually move towards divorce. Or maybe it's this aha moment of, when did I become such a jerk? Or when did I be- start believing that my worth was based on the way that other people love me? Like, when did that become a part of my life? And it, maybe it's just, an awakening like that for you. See, see I, I think this aha moment of noticing something that had been going on maybe for days or weeks or years and he finally goes, oh, oh no. And life finally had his attention, <laughs> Something had to change. See, I would argue that this passage is in its essence about, about a spiritual awakening. It's about coming to life, coming alive in a way where we go, what have, I, what have I done with my life? My self-salvation projects and my self-fulfillment attempts have fallen woefully short from what I desired that they would produce. He came to a census and then he says, I will go to my whom? My father. He, he awakens and then he goes, I've got to get back to my father. We have a word for this. As we read throughout the scriptures, this word comes up over and over and over again. It's an awakening that leads us to crawl back to the father's presence. We call it repentance. Repentance. And it's actually quite a prevalent theme throughout the storyline of Scripture. I mean, listen to the way that Jesus began his public ministry. This is one of the very first messages he gave. It says that now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel or the good news of God saying, and this is according to Jesus, this is the gospel. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. God's rule and reign is possible to enter into right now. Well, how do we get into it, Jesus? Great question. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent. And in, in the original language, it literally meant to, to turn or to rethink or to, to change your mind. I love the way that Dallas Willard put it. Uh, he said the, the word repent means to reconsider. And he said specifically to reconsider your strategy for living. Reconsider, rethink it all. Come to your senses. That's what it means to Repent. See, this younger son realizes that his rejection of his father has gotten him to the place of slavery and scarcity. And he decides, what have I got to lose? I'll at least try to return home. See, repentance is an awakening that leads to action. It's an awakening that leads to action. And for the younger son, and I I would argue for us too, repentance is really a reckoning with who's going to be Lord or King over my life. The younger son's painfully aware that when he's King of his life, it doesn't end up going well. Does anyone want to go, I've been there? Yeah that he doesn't make a good ruler of his own life, that he doesn't make good decisions when he's following just his base level desires, that he's made a ruin of that which God gave him. And so he comes to this position where not only do I need to get back to my father because I need his provision, but I need to get back to my father because I need his wisdom. I I need for him to lead me and guide me. And and while he doesn't think that restoration is possible, he certainly is in the place where he's going, Father, I, I need you. I need you. I, I would suggest to you that repentance is giving up on building our own Babel. <laughs> Do you know what I mean by that? A, Babel is a making of our own name. A repentance is a giving up of building our own Babel. It's a rejection of project self. And it's an entrance into the kingdom of God where we allow God to rule His rule and reign to not only permeate, but also define our lives. Jesus would say, seek first my kingdom and everything else will be added unto you. See, this scene is all about the futility of project self and a change of mind, a rethinking of our strategy for living that drives us back to God's design that we would find life in his presence. And this part of the story, this few verses is all about what it takes to get there and what waits for us when we arrive. So how do we come to our senses? How, how do we have this aha, this, this, this wakey moment spiritually? I'm so glad you asked because the younger son, he's gonna show us, he's gonna show us. Verse 17, Here's what Jesus said. But when he came to himself or when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? I love that phrase, more than enough. Even the, even the servants who are on the outskirts of the property have plenty. I get the, Isaiah, uh, the picture in my mind of Isaiah chapter 55 where, where God would say, come to me and buy food, buy wine without cost. Like there's more than enough. How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I think he comes to his senses and he realizes the fact that he is dying. He's finally getting honest about his current circumstances. I think the younger son's showing us that we have a unique ability as human beings to lie to ourselves. You want, anybody want to say amen to that? Where, where we have a, we can spin things. And even the thought of, well, it's not, it's not, it's not that bad. There's other people that are worse. It's not a big deal. I think of, um, I think of the, the scene in Monty Python, where there's a sword duel going on and the soldier loses both of his arms and there's blood squirting out the sides I was going to show a picture but I didn't want to trigger anyone, okay? And and does anybody know his line? It's only a minor flesh wound. That's all it is. It's only it's only a minor flesh wound. No, no big deal, right? And I think we do the same thing in relationships. We do the th- same thing with our finances. We do the same thing in our parenting. We do the same thing with our health. It's not that big of a deal. See, we're oftentimes unwilling to or unable to see just how bad things really are until we hit rock bottom. But I'm here to tell you guys, here's here's part of the good news of where we're gonna land today. You don't need to hit rock bottom to get honest. You could have an awakening moment before you come to this place of just being gutted out. But in order to do that, we have to admit our desperate need. We have to admit our desperate need need. And here's what I want you to see in the picture that's being painted. The younger son has moved from the idea of, I just need a few minor tweaks or just a few few adjustments to my circumstances. I just need God to give me just, just a little dab of grace to sort of get me going on my way. I need a jump start, and then I'll be fine and then I'll be okay. The younger son has been brought to a place where he realizes his desperate need and it is not for just a little bit of help. It's for rescue. That's where he has come to. He realizes in in no uncertain terms that he needs a complete overhaul of his life. He doesn't just need an improvement or an adjustment. He needs a new beginning. And I think um, author... Kyle Eilman put it well when he said, if self could help, then we would have all been fixed a long time ago. Can we agree with that? If we were able to do it, we would have done it. But that's not what we need. And when we come to God in genuine repentance, the foundation of our repentance is the conviction, I need you. And I don't need you to improve me. I need you to deliver me. That's the conviction that we come with. So in Paul writing about the slavery to sin that so many of us or all of us at one point in time find ourselves in, he will say, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? Not who will improve me, not who will give me a jump start so I can do it, who will give me some self-help tips? He says, Who will deliver me? That's his question from this body of death. And then he answers this question. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And the younger son comes to this place of of desperate need. And if we're gonna have an awakening that leads to repentance and life, I believe that all of us need to come to that same place. Not I need you to improve me. I need you to deliver me. I need you to save me. That's the anthem of this younger son in this moment. And here's what he says. So I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, father, say it with me, church. I have sinned against heaven and against you. I have sinned. Those can be three words that are difficult to utter. I slipped up. Yeah, we like that one. I messed up. Yeah, we'll take that. Maybe even like I made a mistake. Followed by, is it really that big of a deal? But those words, I have sinned. Those have a certain sense of gravitas to them, don't they? They they carry with it, embedded with in those words is the the grievous nature of, of our offense. So sure, we'd rather spin it, messed up, made a mistake just a little bit off, no big deal. No, but the younger son doesn't say that. He says, I have sinned. And it's not, I love that he points out that it's not just that we have squandered the life that God's given us, but he said, I've sinned against heaven and before you. God, I have, my offense is towards you. I'm brought back to the way that Isaiah, when he's in the throne room of God, has this aha moment. Do, do you remember that aha moment in Isaiah chapter six, where Isaiah says, woe to me, for I am lost. I love, I, I, I highlighted that for us because my hope is it evokes some imagery in your head now after the last few weeks, because we just read three stories about a lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost son. <laughs> And Isaiah says in the throne of God, I am lost for I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell amongst the people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the King, the glory of the Lord. I'm a man of unclean lips. I have sinned. It's where the younger son comes to. It's where Isaiah came to. And if we're gonna have an awakening that leads to repentance, that leads to life, it's the same thing that we would do also. Honestly own our sin. Honestly own our sin. And remember, I just want to remind you, I'm suggesting that this story that Jesus is telling is a a meta-narrative. It's not just a story. It's a story that points to a bigger story and a story that points to our story as humanity and a story that points to a way to think about the world and interact with God. So I want to draw you back to the garden in the very beginning where Adam and Eve are created to live in communion and relationship with God. And they choose sin also. They eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And listen to what happens right after that. It says, then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and they made themselves loincloth and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. They they hid from God. But before they did that, they covered themselves. They they tried to to block other people from seeing their shame. They they did it literally, but they also did it figuratively because uh, when God comes up to them and says, what have you done? They start to blame each other, right? Right? Well, it was the woman, it's her fault. She made me do it. And the woman says, well, it's the snake's fault. He made me do it. And everybody's blaming somebody else. It's just a different form of covering. We We don't want people to see our shame. So we'll deflect, we'll make excuses, we'll blame. And then inevitably we feel like we have to go and we have to hide. It's the very thing that, is going on at the beginning of our story of humanity. And I would suggest to you that most people resist getting honest about their sin because it's so painful. It's painful to look at the destruction that we've caused ourselves, the way that we've offended God, the pain that we've caused to others. It's easier to cover and hide than it is to confess honestly. Can we just honestly admit that together today? And so to name our sin and own our sin and to say, I I didn't mess up. I didn't slip up. It wasn't out of character. It was, I sinned against heaven and against you. And it turns out that repentance is, uh, in essence, a reversal of the way that we usually try to cope with sin. See, because sin makes us conceal or hide, but repentance is a revealing Here's what's going on. Sin makes us hide. Repentance is is honesty. It's honesty. And here's the deal, friends. I just wanna do my best to speak truth to you that ultimately one day all of our lives will be laid bare before the throne of God. We will give an account with what we've done with the things that he's entrusted to us and the way that we have lived. And on that day, covering and hiding will do us no good. Will do us no good. And so why not start today? I know it's hard to bring things out into the open that you're struggling with, addiction that you've been hiding and you think you've been sort of maintaining and doing okay with. I know it's difficult to say those three words, I have sinned, but what if there's more life in those three words than there are in any other three? What if I have sinned is actually a portal into the life that God has created us to live because it's a beginning of our journey home. So why not start today? Why not ditch the fig leaves? They're not doing you any good. And why not pray like David prayed after his sin was revealed to him and brought before him? And he turns back to God and he 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 pens this beautiful prayer where he says, Have mercy on me, O God. Have mercy according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgression, wash me from my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is before me and against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. See for Isaiah and for this younger son and for us, This beginning of repentance is admitting our need, but it's also owning our sin. It's not this, it's this. Yeah, it's in me too. So the younger son admits his need, honestly owns his sin and listen to his next statement. He says, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. So, treat me as one of your hired servants. And here we see this next awakening. It's coming to terms with the fact that we don't deserve and have not merited that which our soul was designed for and what we long for most, which is relationship with God. I am no longer worthy, I am unworthy. So um, I want to just sort of take a little dovetail and say to be unworthy is not the same as saying we have no worth. See, our worth is inherent. Our worth is given to us by God, and it can't be lost by anything that we do. You were created in your mother's womb. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. You carry the image of God. It is the very thing that gives you worth. What the younger son is saying and what the rest of scripture is is saying is that we will never stand before the throne of God, beat our chests, say, aren't I amazing? Aren't I great? Aren't I wonderful? I've held up my end of the bargain, God. Now you get to welcome me into your presence forever. Friends, that isn't the way this works. The way this works is that we all have to come to terms with although we have worth, what we've done in sinning against heaven and against God is, has, has made us unworthy of being in his presence. We haven't earned it. No one will boast before the throne of God. We've all said, give me mine. And what the younger son is doing, I believe, is coming to this realization that he has a recognition of his reliance on grace. I'm not worthy. Anything I get from my father from this point forward is gift. I've wronged him. I've shook my fist at him. I've told him, I wish that he were dead. Nothing can bridge that gap. The younger son comes to this realization. He cannot pay his father back. He cannot take back the words that were spoken. He cannot undo what he's done. And I would, I'd suggest to you guys that we only actually come To a realization of the goodness of God's grace when we realize that we have absolutely no resources to win back His approval on our own. And it's this awakening moment of, of, oh God, I am completely and utterly dependent on your mercy towards me, not on my performance, not on what I can do, not on what I can produce. I am completely dependent on your goodness and your mercy and your grace to me. And praise be to God that he is abounding in mercy slow to anger, full of steadfast love. And Paul would write, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, my son was dead and now he's alive. Even when we were dead in our trespasses and in our sins, he made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved. By grace you have been saved. And we are 100% reliant on grace Oh, and here's the good news of the gospel, you guys. Grace is 100% reliable. We're 100% reliant on grace, and grace is 100% reliable. Where sin increased, grace abounds all the more. Somebody say, Praise the Lord. I want to bring you back to where we began this parable the very beginning when the son says to his father, I want your stuff, I don't want you. We said that sin is a breach in relationship before it's a break in law. And that's important to realize because the the younger son is, is coming to terms with this. I don't know if you caught that in the story, but it's not just, hey, I'm gonna send a messenger and maybe my father can send some resources and get me back on my feet, give me a little bit of help, and then I'll be off and running. No, he says, I will arise and I will go to my father. And then it says, and he arose and he came to his father. See, the younger son comes to this realization that repentance is ultimately about return to presence. It's a return to the presence of God. It's a return to the home of his his father. And see, here's how we know That repentance has done its work in us. It's not not just we have a sort of warm feeling inside and it's not just, okay, I got that off my chest, praise God. And it's not just, I confessed that, now it's forgiven. No, see, when you come to your senses, you run to your father. That's how we know. It's not just, objective or judicial in nature. It's not just I've been forgiven. It's I'm back in relationship. Oh, that's so good, isn't it? So good. Notice what happens next. Verse 20, it says, and he arose and he came to his father while he was still a long way off. His father saw him and felt compassion." His father's inward being was was stirred up and turned with love. And he ran and embraced him and kissed him. Back in in Jesus's day, in village life, there there was a ceremony that was entitled Kazaza. Would you say that with me? Kazaza. It literally means a cutting off. Kenneth Bailey describes it in one of his books, and he says, he describes a ceremony like this Any Jew who loses money amongst foreigners and then tries to return was ceremonially banished, where a clay pot filled with burnt beans was broken at the feet of the offender as a visual symbol that the community rejects him forever. So imagine you're in one of these little villages and If somebody like the younger son were to try to come back into the village, somebody would defend the father's honor, wouldn't they? Somebody would would be ready to, to take that clay pot and to meet him as he's coming up on the road. And they might say something to him like, how dare you show your face here? It's done. Go back to where you came from. Or you think the father's gonna welcome you back? <laughs> or don't you remember when you said you wanted this stuff and you didn't want him? <laughs> get out of here, get out of here. And I've always wondered like, why, why is the father in the story presumably waiting? Why is he anticipating? Why is he so ready? And I wonder, this isn't in the story. This is just, I, I'm just, I just wonder if he's saying, nobody's going to beat me to my son. Nobody's going to make it to him before I get there and tell him he's no longer welcomed or no longer loved. I will outrace anyone to make it to my son first so that I can tell him I love you. I'm welcoming you home. I understand what you've done. I can only imagine where you've been, but nothing you ever do could prevent you from no longer being my son. Welcome home. Welcome home. And see, um, I, had this, I had a guide in Israel when I was there a few weeks ago and he flippantly sort of um, off the cuff said, we saw somebody running along the Dead Sea and he looks at the guy and goes, that guy's not Jewish because Jews don't run. <laughs> and I thought in my mind, there's one Jew that did. <laughs> in this story, and yeah, fathers don't run, but this father runs. And, and is it, So that he can stop anybody that would say you're no longer welcome here. The father embraces a posture of disgrace to bring us and his son back to his grace. That's not in your bulletin. You might want to write that down. We'll talk more about that next week. Someone in our church body um, showed me a picture of this wonderful sort of modern depiction of the prodigal. And I love this one, it's by Edward Roy Haas. I love this one because it shows the younger son just limping home. I used the word run, but I don't know how much running he was actually literally doing, he was returning. But I love it, if you can see in the top right, the father, (laughs) and the two people looking at him like, what are you doing, dude? And he's like, you're not gonna beat me there. You're not going to beat me there. See, because the truth of the matter that Jesus is showing us is that when you run to the father, he always runs toward you. When you run to the father, he runs toward you. And I love it that in the end, in the end, the younger son, he, he, in verse 21, he starts to rehearse his speech. Like you can just imagine, like on the way home, he's going, okay, here's what I'm going to say. I'm going to own this. I'm going to tell him where I've been. I'm going to, here's my plan. Father, I'll, I'll just, just, you don't have to look at me. You don't have to talk to me. Just put me on the outskirts of your land. It's all, it's, it's, it's all good. You can almost imagine that he's preparing his speech. And I love it. It says, and the son said to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and before you, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Is that true? Yes, it's true. But the father said to his servants, bring, Quickly, the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. It's almost like the father's like, dude, your spe- I don't care about your speech. I just care that you're home. And I think in it, we start to see that maybe repentance is more for us than it is for God. Like he's not looking at a checklist going, did you address that point? Huh. Well, or, or you're not contrite enough, younger son, like out, banish you. No. Like he doesn't even want to hear the speech. He just wants him. He just wants him. And so when we talk about awareness of our need, owning of our sin, reliance on grace, those are things that cause an awakening in us. They're not a checklist of things that God is looking for. God wants us. God wants us. Come home. That's it. The blood of Jesus and forgiveness of sin has made a way. The invitation is come home. And friends, repentance that doesn't lead us back to relationship and doesn't lead us back to the heart of our Father is what Paul would write in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and would call a worldly grief that produces death. Worldly grief just puts us back into this cycle of do more, try harder, Maybe next time I could make it. Maybe next time I'll do a little bit better. I'm going to pull up my brute straps and I'm going to get it done. But the repentance that God is looking for is one that leads us back to his heart, back to relationship with him, where we know his compassion, where we know his kindness, where we feel his embrace, where we can live out of that fullness not out of the searching and striving and squandering and scarcity and slavery that sin puts us in, but so that we can come to the place where we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we are unconditionally and eternally loved by the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He's our creator, he's our redeemer. He hasn't just helped us, he has delivered us from sin and death and evil. What a wretched man am I who can save me from this body of death. Praise be to God who through Jesus Christ has done what I could never do on my own. Amen? Amen. So for some of us today, for some of you today, I think there's an invitation to to, um, an awakening. Here's my two questions I just wanna leave you with. What's your awakening? And can I press on you, if your mind immediately went to something that happened 10 years, 20 years, 30, 50 years ago, can I suggest to you that maybe there's, more awakening that Jesus wants to do in your life? What's your awakening this week? And what would it look like for you to have an aha moment, to admit need, to get honest about sin, reliant on grace? What would that look like? And then here's my question, the second question, uh, where do you need to run? See, some of you, the invitation today is you've been outside of relationship with the father and the invitation is to run toward him. But for some of us, I said on week one, I really would love a church that had a mission statement of being accused of the same things Jesus was accused of. And if the father runs to the broken and if the father runs to those who are destitute. And if the father runs to those who have squandered and who are in positions of scarcity and who've made a mess of their lives, what if his church was also the kind of people who ran towards people hurting? Not with a clay pot to like bash at their feet and go, you've screwed it all up. But with open arms of compassion to say, There's a God who loves, a God who sees, a God who redeems. You're 100% reliant on grace and praise be to God. Grace is 100% reliable. Let's pray. Let me just pause and give you a chance to bring yourself before God. Would you just ask that question? God, what do you want to awaken in me? Is there something that's grown dormant? Something that's just been lulled to sleep? Am I I trying to conceal or hide something? God, what do you want to awaken in me? Give me an aha moment. an awakening that would lead to action and ultimately back into your presence where there's fullness of joy. And then who do you need to run to? Any people limping home? And maybe, just maybe, you would be one of the first people to welcome them with grace, not with a clay pot shattered at their feet. But you may need to run to them because there's a lot of people carrying around clay pots ready to bash them. Holy Spirit, this is your work. You specialize in aha moments, in awakenings of bringing dead things to life, of causing people to be born again. We would humbly come before you today and ask, would you do your work afresh in us? We we all have a younger brother inside of us. Would you help us come to our senses and run to our Father? We pray this in the name of Jesus. And all God's people together say, amen, amen. Thank you for listening to our service. We'd love to have you join us in person. For more information about our church and service times, please visit efcc.org. If you would like to support the ministries of Emmanuel Faith, you can do so at efcc.org give.